electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC, Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli of Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. We are putting Q3 mercifully to bed with some green arrows as the disinflation trend continues around the world. Eurozone CPI runs cool. Core PCE finally a three-handle for the first time in two years. Our roadmap begins with the last trading day of the month and quarter. Stocks looking to rally at the open, looking to close out the worst month of the year on this high note. Plus, the latest read on inflation ahead of a potential government shutdown over the weekend and the likely expansion of the big three auto strikes. National Economic Council Director Lael Brainerd joins us this hour. And shares of Nike are rallying this. Despite its first revenue miss in two years, the company is saying that it sees a resilient consumer both here in the U.S. and in China. S&P Dow Nasdaq all on pace for the worst month of the year so far as the street now braces for a potential government shutdown as soon as tomorrow night. Uh, meantime, we knew PCE, Mike, was going to be uh, the 10-pole uh, data point of the week. And yeah. some relief that we got the 3-9. Yeah, people leaning toward the uh, idea it would be a relatively softer number based on some of the clues going into it. So as expected, you know, we, we spoke at, around the close yesterday, Carl. I said we, we're going to be allowed to mark our fear to reality here because it's been all about wait what's going on with this messy sell-off in the bond market it seems unanchored it seems like it's got a life of its own uh, and now we did get yesterday gdp revisions weekly claims today uh the pce inflation number so we had the economy we more or less thought we had bond yields calming down uh and getting a little bit of a of a bit in uh, in stocks it's all happening coming together uh, almost a little too scripted, maybe, at the last day of the, of the quarter. Uh, you have had both stocks and bonds down together in lockstep this quarter, almost by the same magnitude. Uh, and so there's no real reshuffling that I would expect around that. But, uh, you know, it does seem as if you maybe for now done enough on the downside in stocks, even if it feels a little too cute. By that, I mean, uh, as I said, last day of the quarter, the sell-off, really the weakness started August 1st, the very beginning of all the seasonal weakness period. And then... The S&P goes down to, oh, I don't know, 20 points above its 200-day average and 4,200, what everyone was looking at. The VIX, everyone says it's got to get to 20. It gets to 19.7 as a high. So, you know, the question is, can it work that tidily uh, to have that be uh, all we needed to do in terms of a correction in this mode? Uh, Mike, I know. Seasonality. Like, it's crazy, what, what, isn't it? What, 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 yeah. What, I mean, sometimes I hear it and I'm like, what are we actually even talking Every about? Every single month, not even every year, I say, how can this not already be kind of either front run, arbitraged out, or just over time lose any ability to be predictive? Because, you know, the more years you have, you would think more randomness can filter yes. into it. Um, and of course, it doesn't always work. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons I've been a little bit suspicious about how perfect it's, it's, it's sort of fit this year. Uh, and it could be partly coincidence. A lot of things did get piled on the market around that time. Um, but so far, it has uh, it has mattered. You know, you see people slicing and dicing it even more finely, where it's not just oh things start to get better in the middle of August and you get usually a year-end rally. 
uh, to the point where if the market was up through July, at least 10 percent, and then down both in August and September, it's been up the rest of the year every single time. Now, it's only a handful of times. We're not talking about statistical significance levels of, you know, uh, really high tolerances to the data. But this is what we see. And uh, I guess there's certain flow elements uh, that matter here. Uh, the cadence of looking toward the next year's earnings and economic data, mm-hmm. election cycles, all the rest. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the commentary setting up Q4. Goldman's a good example today where they've talked about the potholes, the shutdowns, the strikes, the student loans. Um, but their general take appears to be that you'll see some weakness and potentially it could be something of a head fake. They do raise their rate forecast today. They see the 10-year ending both this year and next yeah. at 4.3 versus a prior at 3.9, 3.75. Yeah, it's a sense out there that uh, clearly they concede that they didn't think it would go as high as it has. And remember, we're, we're up from like 3.75 on the 10-year to over 4.5 in about two months, a little over two months. So that is a pretty violent move. Um, but they, I guess essentially, if you feel like the Fed is about where it's going to be, so that the short end shouldn't go moving around too much, uh, you feel like we have some real yields in there. Disinflation comes in. There's no perfect, you know, storm of reasons that should drive it that much higher. But I don't know. A, a, a 10-year yield forecast 15 months in advance is, is always just a little bit of a crapshoot anyway. Uh, but in terms of the economy, in terms of the known headwinds, uh, yet we see them coming. It should, be, uh, it should exacerbate whatever slowdown is underway uh, from a decent pace of, uh, of economic activity. But it always seems to me whenever we get a shutdown, whenever you get a big strike, uh, when it, in addition to slowing things down, you get the payback phase after things resolve. And then you get permission to sort of downplay or ignore the data that happened during the shutdown or the strike. Right. You always remember, oh, people are kind of going to put an asterisk next to it. And, and so it kind of almost buys the market time to uh, to not panic over whatever comes uh, comes next because it's extenuating circumstances, but that's kind of just an educated gut feel. Don't know if either one of you had an opportunity to listen to Barry Sternlich this morning uh, on Squawk Box, but you know, raising alarms about a lot of things, including his belief that the inflation target essentially has been met if you take out rent, particularly the lagging effect in terms of how it's actually measured, uh, and saying the Fed has done more than enough, but things are going to get out of its control given the deficits that have been created by massive government spending. Of course, it wouldn't surprise me if he's out there in the market raising a distressed debt fund. <laughs> did sound like a marketing pitch yeah, for yes. one. But he's not one to ignore. Uh, and we don't do that, obviously, uh, when, when you do listen to him. But he, you know, he's arguing, again, when you look at that tenure, that the demand supply, that yeah. may really become much more of a factor. Uh, well, it yeah. certainly what, what Dalio talked about with Sarah earlier exactly. in the week. And what Ackman said about what you, what you should be willing to pay to enter into a long-term contract yeah with the government. Here's what Ackman said at Delivering Alpha yesterday. My view is inflation, or kind of the House view is inflation is going to be persistently higher. Well, you are the House. I guess I control the door on the way in and out, I guess. But, um, you know, our our view is really that uh, we're in a different world. And, you know, the world sort of changes gradually. Uh, and, and you have a generation of people who are used to rates, you know, four sounding like a high interest rate. And, and it's, you know, on a historical basis, it's extremely low rate of interest. So I, I would not be shocked to see, you know, 30-year rates well, you know, well into the, you know, through the five barrier. Uh, and you could see ten, the 10-year approach, uh, approach five. Uh, five handle? Yeah. Think? Uh, the, the five handle is 
getting talked about all over the place. Uh, the distance between here and five is half the distance we traveled since July. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's not really that big a leap to talk about five, even though really not that long ago it was considered to be uh, a bit of a stretch. But it is interesting to see the contrasting views, right? So, David, you're saying... Really, inflation's already tame. That's by, right. By That's Sternlich's what you're, and Sternlich was disagreeing with that. Yeah, yes. exactly. And, yeah. Every, and a lot of other people are saying, look, we're kind of settling out above, you know, two to three, whatever it's going to be. So you can, you can argue about that. You can decide which metrics matter most for that. Um, I think to me, the big issue that the markets have had is a non-fundamental surge in Treasury yields that at least on some level, based on perception plus reality, is supply-driven. Um, is not necessarily a comfortable thing, right? It's not like we're repricing what the Fed's doing. It's not like inflation expectations are taken off. It's just there's too many bonds being sold. Right. Rick well, Reeder it, had it, the same thing to say it yesterday. It moves beyond the Fed's ability to control it, which is a scary yeah. idea to a certain right. extent. Exactly. And, if, and as, as uh, Sternlich you know, raised the prospect, if the Saudis don't step up and the Chinese don't step up, and, well, why would they, yeah. given what we're issuing right now? Right. We've it been talking about it every day at this test with Sarah, yeah. but it's certainly something you have to think about when you watch. Well, at least we exceeded four, six, eight at one point this week. Yeah. We're down. And that being said, I mean, nothing goes in a straight line. You know, the yields got way off the rails in terms of, you know, how accelerated they were above their trend and everything, all that stuff. And you do find enough people out there saying, listen, you're getting paid, actually, in terms of inflation-adjusted yield on the longer end to lock it in. It's not a no-brainer because you can also get higher yields on the short uh, short paper. But, you know, there's still a school of thought that says it can do its job if you own long duration, you go into recession, presumably we get a bond rally. To me, the disaster scenario is the economy weakens a lot, bonds don't get a bid, and then everyone says our, our models are busted. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's a scary moment, but we're not really there. Right. Uh, certainly getting uh, telegraphed a little bit uh, by a number of firms yeah. throughout the course of this week. And then there's Nike, of course, missing on revenue for the first time in a couple of years, although earnings and gross margins were a beat. Sales in China, five. CEO John Donahoe did sound bullish on the call last night. I've been to China twice now in the past four months, and I think, Matt, you were there in, in August. And I we feel good about the market there and our position. You know, frankly, a couple things stand out. One, sport is back in China. You can just feel it. And that gives us great confidence about the future and the Chinese consumer in our segment, regardless of the macroeconomic outlook there. Some uh, target raises. Uh, Matt Boss at JPM goes at up a dollar to 137. He thinks 101 was a fundamental floor based on a five-year trough valuation. Um, Interesting on China, there's a bunch of swirling headlines about plans by Yellen to yeah. increase communication, more hopes that we bring at least the vice premier here, maybe she to San Francisco at this summit in November. Yeah, it's, it's working against, I think, you know, weeks of, uh, of kind of, you know, sort of doomsday about the, about the relationship and the trends there and, and whether the economy can really, you know, accept uh, the, the recharge that they're attempting. When it comes to Nike, um, it's interesting you look at a five-year valuation range because Nike got really expensive over the last five years, and so that's going to give you a little more of a, a, a leeway to say that, the, that the, the fundamentals look better relative to the, to the price. Did really see the street get sort of skeptical and start to sort of doubt the long-term story going into this. So I think that's good uh, in terms of the setup. Margins better. North America looks okay. And the sell-side kind of takeaways today are all about it's refreshing to hear Nike talk about, you know, innovation and newness. Or whatever. When have they not? I mean, that's all they ever really talk about. And it's kind of true, but it's also 
It, it just shows you people are wanting to latch on to. Let's, let's please tell us it's a growth story again. Inventories seem like maybe they're largely uh, taken care of to some degree. But, uh, but Mike, I mean, you nailed uh, the, the performance of the stock coming into, the, yeah. coming into this clearly indicated a belief that they were off track yes, to a certain exactly. extent. And they showed that they're not. Yeah, operationally um, it worked. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, Goldman, for its part, though, saying near-term pass still choppy. Company works through tough comparisons, elevated rates of competition in select categories. Uh, but that has driven what's been the bearish sentiment going into yeah. the quarter, and obviously they outperformed that by a long shot, hence 10%. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was this phase, you know, in the last few months where it was people sort of feeling as if Nike was a little more discretionary than they thought before. And, you know, they, they don't have as much pricing power as they did. But it seems like, you know, especially if, 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 if it's true that China is going to redeem the enthusiasm that the, that the company has right now, then... You know, they're talking about more newness and road running. Come on, exactly. more newness. Plus the Olympics. <laughs> Olympics. Oh, the Olympics. I always We've checked I our was... calendars, and they're still on they're for on next year. And it, you know, but, you know, that's almost like seasonality. Where you, that shouldn't work. <laughs> the Olympics come on schedule. The World Cup comes on schedule. By the and, way, you can see those Olympics here on uh, on, that's right. uh, on, on your NBC and Peacock yes. uh, channels. Yeah. And on the lead Never up. Never early to promote. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. No, no. And on the lead up to it, you feel as if that's a reason to buy the stock. But it's like, well, why isn't that already figured out? Well, we'll see. It's already in there in the See, market. In the not. mysteries of the market, Mike, they just keep you. That's why you keep coming the, back. The, the, you know, the more I learn, the less I feel I know. Billy so. <laughs> Joel. Uh, big show still ahead uh, as Squawk uh, goes to Pebble Beach for Cities Tech and Media Conference. Cities uh, Jane Frazier is going to join us exclusively next hour. Talk about rates, inflation, and of course her efforts to reinvent the, the bank. Along with IBM's Arvin Krishna later on, bringing his uh, his take on AI, the tech ecosystem, and a lot more. Take a look at the pre-market. We're going to try to close out September and the quarter with some green, and we'll get to some of the other names making some news on this Friday. Don't go anywhere. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Watching the auto names this morning, UAW President Sean Fain set to deliver an update at the top of the hour and is expected to expand the walkout as these strikes enter their third week now. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the latest, Phil. I guess we'll have to fire up the Facebook Live yet again. Yeah, this is the routine, and we've seen this now the last two Fridays. We'll see it again in about 45 minutes. Here's how it will go down. 10 o'clock Eastern is when Sean Fain will go on Facebook Live. He will give an update in terms of his view of how negotiations are going. And if there's no progress in the opinion of the UAW, they will call for more strikes. Those strikes, if there are new locations... They would start at noon Eastern. That's when those workers at those facilities would walk out. There are about 18,300 UAW Big 3 employees who are currently on strike. That's about 12.5% of the UAW members at GM, Ford, and Stellantis. Most of these locations 
are maybe 100 to 200 people at a parts and distribution center. Just three final assembly plants have been hit. And many believe that Ford, which was not included last week, will likely be part of the strikes announced today, if there are strikes announced today. Speaking of Ford, Bill Ford at a employee town hall yesterday at Ford was talking about the strike. And he said, we'll get through this like we have every other difficult time we've had in 120 years. And we'll do it by focusing on the best interests of our employees. Ford, GM, Stellantis all believe that they're making competitive offers starting somewhere in that 20, 21 percent in terms of a wage uh, increase. And then obviously there are other things such as cost of living, wage tiers. Those all need to be worked out as well. As you take a look at the shares, remember, we will be getting September and Q3 sales. And for the most part, guys, these, this strike, well, it's a big deal. It's huge, especially long-term implications. It hasn't impacted sales to a large extent at this point. Sure, you might be struggling a bit to find a Ranger or a Bronco or a GMC Canyon or a Jeep Wrangler, perhaps. Um, but for the most part, we will see fairly decent numbers, not only from the big three, but for all the automakers when they report next week. Uh, Phil, a couple things. Uh, we're going to get Tesla deliveries Monday, I think. A bunch of trimming, uh, yep, trims to those probably. numbers today. And then Jonas at Morgan Stanley talking about a few weeks ago we were inclined to take the under on the duration of a strike. Not anymore, uh, but he doesn't think it's necessarily no. a bad thing for the, the long-term health of the D3. Yeah, and I think from his perspective, if you read that note, a big part of the note was talking about have they gone so hard into EV development and plans for EVs that perhaps people are underappreciating the legacy business, the internal combustion engine business? Look, they have massive profits right now that are coming out of their ICE businesses. Transaction prices have never been higher. Truck demand, SUV demand remains incredibly strong. He's not advocating that they give up on EVs, but what he is saying is perhaps the big three will be a little more judicious in terms of their investments uh, coming out of this strike when it comes to electric vehicles. And Phil, I, I guess the question is to what degree the D3 can structure their business and their investment plans in a way that they can be kind of agnostic and flexible based on what the customers want. I mean, you know, if, they, if they're taking signals sure. from the market, you look at Tesla's market cap, you know, you look at the market share trends, and it's the market telling them it's this or nothing. You have to basically be big in EVs. It's very yep. much like legacy media looking at Netflix's valuation and saying we got to do all this streaming stuff. So, I mean, can the, big, the D3 be patient about this transition? Um, they will tell you that they can be patient. Uh, Mike, I don't mean to be flippant about this. It ultimately comes down to you've got to put out an electric vehicle that makes somebody say, I want that instead of a Tesla. I know that sounds very trite, but I, I, I'm still going by the metric of people that I talk to who are not in this business or in the auto business. I don't have anybody coming up to me and saying, I'm looking for this from GM or Ford and or when Stellantis is having an electric vehicle. No, they're asking me, gee, I, I was thinking about getting a Model 3 or a Model Y. What do you think? And I'm sorry, but that's the metric right now. And at some point, at some point, if they really want to be successful in EVs, they've got to come out with a product that turns heads. Carl? Uh, indeed, Phil, thanks. Uh, we'll see what happens later on this morning. Our Phil LeBeau will be all over that uh, today. Still to come this morning, National Economic Council Director Lael Brainerd with her reaction to this morning's inflation data and the possibility of a government shutdown ahead. We are looking for the House maybe to vote on this party line CR. A lot more squawk on the street when we come right back. 
From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. As you can see, uh, we are looking for a higher open when we get started with trading. A little less than seven minutes from now as we end the third quarter. Yeah, Monday's trading begins the final quarter of the year. By the way, don't forget, you can catch us anytime, anywhere. If you want to listen to and follow the Squawk in the Street opening bell podcast. We're back after this. I've lived through a few bubbles. We like to describe these moments as super cycles, right? The internet, mobile, cloud computing, and now AI. Um, they're the start of these things that are going to be profoundly impactful in our lives. But at those moments, you can also have overhype and overprice. And so as an investor or a builder, you have to get comfortable with two simultaneous but competing truths. On the one hand, we probably overestimate in the very short term, which leads to price inflation, the impact that these things will have. But much like the internet 98 and 99, where there was overpricing in the short run, we dramatically underestimated the impact it was going to have over the preceding decade. That's Altimeter's uh, capital CEO and longtime tech investor Brad Gerstner with his take on the AI market frenzy. David, we talk with Jim about this all the time, whether it's possible for the market to get used to new chapters without, without overhyping, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Brad did a very good job of sort of summarizing something we have been questioning as well. Oftentimes, Mike, of course, we go back to the bubble, yeah. the technology bubble, I mean, from sure. the uh, mid to late 90s, uh, culminating in 99, right around 2000, then yeah. ending in March of 2000. Sure. It's not as though anybody's arguing that there weren't some amazing companies born during that period of time and exactly. or that the, the power of the Internet wasn't perhaps not even close to being appreciated, right. yet 99% of the companies associated with it are no longer with us. For sure. And it's interesting because we are a little bit quick to lock into that mode of, well, this must be a bubble. It's been less than a year since ChatGPT really started getting that attention. Um, you know, back in the 90s, Netscape was 95. The bubble culminates four and a half years later. Um, hundreds and hundreds of IPOs in there. Hundreds. I mean, massive increases across the board in all kinds of companies that really were and weren't beneficiaries. And right now we're talking about like three big companies and maybe an IPO that was tangentially AI. So I'm not saying we have to get anywhere close to that. It is. But, you know, you have seen anywhere. C3 AI is yeah. down from 42 to 25 in like three or four months, right? For a while, that seemed to be kind of a silly one. I know. And are you really going to call NVIDIA a bubble? I don't think right. so. Exactly. That doesn't seem possible based on its growth rate and it's implied at this point yeah. multiple. I think you can, you know, you can make the case that they're front-loading massive amounts of, of revenue right now, but not really that it's a, it's a bubble. I don't even think Gerster was really asserting that right now we are at one of those mania points if the long-term you know, promise is what he thinks it is. What about the notion, what about the notion that AI is coming into a, a tech environment with a much deeper bedrock? More IT right. stacks all over the place. Exactly. So, uh, you know, Microsoft is the best example of that. It's just like a, a really great growth kicker to a business that already has kind of earned a $2 trillion valuation. Going into the open here with futures close to 
pre-market highs at the big board today. It is Train Technologies, an HVAC manufacturer at the NASDAQ. It's Maravai Life Sciences doing the honors. Interesting to look at the sectors that performed in Q3. Energy was the only green one, but actually elements of tech were some of the least bad. Yeah, exactly. There was a sort of a, you know, the, the growth that can endure trade was there. Of course, Meta's been a real uh, a real strong uh, stock. Even Alphabet held up better. So it's, it's, it's definitely a mix. To me, the big concern expressed in the market action was that the leadership among consumers' second goals was, was, was not long for this world, was going to get eroded by what's happening with yields and oil. It didn't completely, you know, uh, unwind the enthusiasm that the consumer can hang in there, but that's where I think most of the doubt uh, did, uh, did come in uh, to this market. And it's interesting to see where we're trading up to here in the S&P, right? We got up three-quarters of a 1%. It's basically Monday's high, uh, 4330s. That was also the August low. So we're kind of playing a little bit of that tactical game. We certainly got pretty oversold. Uh, the median stock in the S&P, I just took a look this morning, is about 15.5% off its high. It's more than twice as much as the S&P itself is off its high. And that median stock is also only up 1% year-to-date. Uh, and, you know, up 20% from the October low. So, you know, you could argue that there's been a fair bit of, of work done in terms of, uh, you know, downside, resetting valuation and expectations, uh, if not because, you know, the, the calendar is going to change, but because uh, it's just a, a little bit less um, enthusiastic than we were in, in July about a soft landing. Uh, just about a couple of weeks before earnings season kicks off, I think on the on Friday the 13th. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's a good that's a good notion. Exactly. Um, uh, Tony Pasquarello over at Goldman today kind of echoes that. Says maybe this is too clever. Yeah. But it does seem like if you get out of a, a government shutdown, market's done a little more work. That maybe you can rely on some of the historical trends you talked about a minute ago. And and you just get a little more of a critical mass of corporate fundamentals building up, and and you know we're going to get through. Hopefully, if we have the government data, you get through another jobs report. The three month. Uh, you know, core PCE trend, three month, is just over 2% right now. So it's, it's not a scary number. Uh, so a lot of the big, uh, I guess, driving factors of, of the market going up in the first part of the year, you know, they more or less remain in place. Of course, the, the yield story is, is you can't overthink it. I mean, if, if, if the Treasury bond, if the Treasury yields don't calm down a fair bit, uh, then it's still going to cause people to, to question because we have this late cycle psychology that we can't seem to, you know, get out of because of where we are uh, in the tightening uh, campaign and all the rest of it. What do we think a fair bit is in terms of calming down on the Treasuries, Mike? Do you have something in mind when you say that? Um, I think you just want to see like, a, a, like a, a couple of weeks of, you know, where, you know, that below four and a half or something like that, where it just seems as if it's not a one-way trade. Um, there's been a lot of work done on terms of the, the Treasury ETFs. Uh, oh, the TLT, Bollinger Band, yes, yes. And, and all the rest of it. And that's all, that's all very long-term uh, Treasuries. Well, we're moving in the right direction on yield, at yeah, least, over now. the last couple of trading days. For sure. Um, and, and all along, as people have noted, corporate debt, the spreads have remained actually tighter, tighter through this. Um, and, and so maybe that means there's not a lot of value in corporate debt, but it does mean that there's not any macro panic uh, filtering in you know, either. So, uh, you know, the free cash flow yield of the S&P 500, and this is something re I spoke to Rick Reeder of BlackRock about yesterday too, is pretty much up in the normal range. Basically, if you do evaluation based on free cash flow, it's the one way you can look at the market that doesn't make it look 
overvalued at the index level. It's because of the kind of companies we have in there. But you might say, well, you got 4.5% tenure. Don't you have to compare it to that? Sure, except in the 80s and 90s, yields were, bond yields were higher, and you still traded in this area. So I think you could look outside the very largest companies and say this kind of you know, relatively normal valuations if the economy hangs together. A lot of discussion about the consumer today. Uh, and after the GDP revisions yesterday, a view at least at, at B of A and JP Morgan that excess savings, which we thought yeah. was dwindling, may be higher now uh, relative to the projected trend um, before the revisions. Uh, I did see Carnival come in with a pretty nice beat, uh, 86 versus 75 cents. Passengers carried up 40 yeah. year on year. Uh, passenger cruise days up 46 yeah. year on year. That's a 4% gain this morning. Yeah, it is remarkable. I mean, the excess savings calculation was always along the way just this kind of inferred number, right, based on prior trends and based on, uh, you know, account balance. I mean, it's very, it's not exactly like a reported number, no. right? So you always have to triangulate it. It's definitely been worn down. It's definitely not ev evenly distributed. Uh, that's the other thing is that certainly lower income households are, do not enjoy as much, even if they have more cash in their accounts than they did before the pandemic. You know, Tony Pascarello's note at Goldman also, it, as an aside, mentioned when this could be a prop for inflation to some degree, is baby boomers' proclivity for spending down their savings while they're here. <laughs> and, you know, you talk about Carnival, I don't know if that's part of it, but it seems as if they're sort of... They're not leaving it to the kids? I, I think that was the implication. <laughs> you can't know. take it with you. I guess not. So we'll see if that's the case. Uh, some upgrades uh, this morning of the restaurants. Um, you got Brinker up uh, as uh, as they as Stiefel goes to buy. Uh, they go to 45. Texas Roadhouse, uh, North Coast ups to buy. QSR Loop goes to buy. That's their um, that's on some Burger King uh, checks. Some of these names. Uh, Bumble's a good example where. You, first buy rating for some of these firms in a couple yeah. of years. It feels like people are trying to get opportunistic within the consumer uh, inflected areas uh, to say that, you know, the, the risk reward looks a little bit better. So yeah, you see that uh, basically a flat year to date chart if things are holding together fundamentally. So it, it seems like that as opposed to a real call that we're in for a consumer uh, acceleration. But, um, you know, this is what you have to do, I think, when I said, uh, you had the, the median stock off 15% from a high and see if that, uh, that took care of some of the excesses and, and reset expectations pretty well. One thing, David, we haven't mentioned is uh, uh, apron, blue apron, finally going out. And Chico's this week we didn't talk about yesterday. I didn't even see yeah. a blue apron, Carl. Yeah, so. um, yeah a blue apron, let's see. Uh, I have it right here. Um, a Wonder Group, uh, Mark Laurie, a 13 a share. We remember that the day of that oh, IPO. Yeah. I, I remember it well. I think I quoted it fairly recently, um, when the CEO ultimately really didn't have answers. It's not a great moment there, but uh, we all wondered, of course. Not a not a great IPO, and hasn't been particularly good since then. Eighty-one million dollars. By the way, it is worth coming back to some of the recent IPOs, which we were talking about on a daily basis. Arm is held in there. Yeah. Um, haven't taken a look at a couple of the other ones, Mike, that we also, Instacart. Yeah. Um, but, um, Card firm you know, they, they've hung bit. in yeah. there. And Arm, you know, Arm in particular, given it was the largest, look at that. That's That, that actually is performing yeah. fairly well. It came somewhat close to the to the syndicate bit of 51, but never quite hit it and has bounced again. And Cart's around just over 30. Right. Yeah, so 
it's up 2% this week. So it, it, they're finding their level, I guess, uh, after the, the initial wave of, uh, of, of excitement and disappointment, which is often the, the way they travel. Uh, did we hit uh, Exxon at a new high? No, I, uh, we know that from this morning, uh, Exxon yeah. hitting, an, uh, that's a new all-time, I believe. Right? So it's or, a new all-time high. It's not a, always fun to look at. Not a new all-time high in market cap. That's what I thought. Because I remember a five in front of that market yeah. cap at one point at the highest. Over 500. Yep. Uh, four, a little over 4 billion shares right now at the high in market cap. It was 5.6 billion shares. It's like the largest company. You remember? I mean, at one point. Exactly. And then uh, what was incredible to me was that so many companies passed this company as if it was just a, another large cap, nothing stock. And that was not the case. Hello, everyone. Kind of out of body. Hi, Jim. How's jury duty going? No, you're not allowed to talk about it. Oh, you're not. No, thank you, David. For- okay. Well, it's nice to have you here, even <laughs> if you are two steps away from me. Technically sequestered. But you can't what are you thinking about this morning, Jim? Well, I'll tell you. I think that we're in one of the situations where I know this is going to sound odd, but if oil's calm, bonds calm, it's Nike. And I think that Nike is presenting the first time that the bears have something to fear. The Bears have had the run of things. I mean, you have a good quarter, the stock goes up, and then it gets crushed. Nike's got some staying power. Congratulations to Matt Boss, by the way, from J.P. Morgan, who said, do not desert this stock. And I was, you know, I don't know if you guys were in the conference call, but it was what, it returned to the joyous nature of great uh, new products, Paris Olympics, inventory's gone, just glo- gleeful. I actually kind of added to this picture of, Destocking having worked. Yes. Going into holiday, right? It does show you that there's something that we all look forward to. Now, we were talking about earnings October 13th. I like that. But if we are in a situation where inventory is lower, you can imagine how many companies could be doing much better. If that's the metric, if that's the metric, wow. And, and I, I have to tell you that Nike has been under such pressure that it's incredibly visible how poorly it's been doing. Does it have a broader impact, though, as well on sort of the health of the Chinese consumer, given I the comments so that too. we had from Donahoe? Yes, I do see Apple the, shares up, but not, not, not outperforming the market right now. No, oh. but, you know, remember, Apple was running high. Remember the titanium hot story of which when I talk to people about that, they reminded me that every phone runs hot when you're downloading your initial. I wonder if, like, I always thought immediately that, only the short seller's phones ran high. Are we going to see you again today? I'm here. You're around? Okay. No, I throw some makeup on. I look like you. My father, once I came on, my late father, who again was crazy about your mom, but was not here. Um, David's mom yes. for the third. Uh, and great contract that he posed him. But uh, when I would not have makeup, he would say, what, what is it, flu? What do you have? What do you have? Is it uh, just a cold? Is it laryngitis? What do you have? It's like the whole guessing game. So anyway, I don't, but I did not want to lose, miss my opportunity to come on the show. That's good. You look good today. You do. Thank you. <laughs> I good night's sleep. I have my PT guy come at 4.30 instead of quarter four. Good for you. Thank you. We'll see you later, Jim. Uh, let's get to Sarah Eisen this morning, who does join us from out west with a special guest. Morning, Sarah. Good morning, Carl. We've got a lot of great guests coming up. And, and first, we're going to go to Washington for this one on the news of the day. Lael Brainerd joins us, director of the National Economic Council from the White House to talk about inflation, the shutdown and more. Director Brainerd, it's good to see you. Nice to see you. So I'd love your reaction to today's inflation print. I, I would think that it's good news. Certainly the market's taking it that way to get core PCE below that 4% level and really starting to step down. Do you think we're on a sustainable path here to much lower inflation? 
Well, you said it. I think the uh, inflation data today is absolutely good news. It's what we've been expecting to see. You know, if you look at core, core inflation in particular, it's running at 2.2% on a three-month annualized basis. Uh, that is uh, really uh, very encouraging. We've seen unemployment now down below 4% for 19 months in a row during a period where inflation has come down and core inflation particularly is now in the range that it was pre-pandemic. But yet it's still, it's still elevated. I mean, isn't it? We're still looking at 3.9% core inflation. Services inflation in particular is a problem. And then you have these forces out there, higher gas prices, and I know that's not into core, but it, it could seep its way in and it's certainly important. The strikes, UAW, potentially now healthcare workers, all of that, it couldn't it threaten to keep inflation elevated? So I have to say the main story of all the naysayers was that you couldn't get core inflation to come down without a big increase in job destruction. That is not what we've seen. We've seen continued job creation. And inflation at the core has come down into the range that we saw pre-pandemic, 2.2% on a three month. That's very consistent with uh, where uh, people had been before the pandemic. Yes, I think there are risks to the economy. The uh, economy, however, has proven remarkably resilient. And I think the real question right now is we can't take that resilience for granted. And, you know, if you look at what's going on with House Republicans on the Hill in particular, I think you really just worry about an unforced error like a completely unnecessary shutdown, putting the economy at risk unnecessarily at a time when it's doing so well. Well, talk to us a little bit more about the, the potential economic risk of a shutdown? How, how great is it in your view? You know, I think that a, a shutdown is still completely avoidable. It is completely in the hands of the House, uh, the House Republicans in particular. Uh, if they want to avoid a shutdown, it's completely doable. Um, and in terms of uh, the risks, you know, think about it, 1.3 active uh, service members uh, working without pay uh, air travel delays because of all those uh, air traffic controllers being asked to work without pay. Seven million mothers and children being turned away at grocery checkout lines if uh, they are not able to continue to access uh, WIC benefits. The list goes on and on. And again, it's completely unnecessary. It's a completely unnecessary risk to an economy that's otherwise proven so resilient. It should, though, all snap back, right, when they open the government again. I mean, I know there's lost productivity there, but in terms of lasting damage, is there any real worry? So I think really uh, the concern uh, is that uh, going into a shutdown unnecessarily, um, you know, just think about it. Three months ago, there was a bipartisan agreement, strong bipartisan majorities in both the House and Senate. They did a great deal, uh, cutting $1 trillion in spending. Uh, and now we're right back at it again with House Republicans. Now, before they were threatening to default, yeah. now they're threatening to shut down the government. I think that takes a toll. And it really takes a toll on all those people who would be 
essentially being asked to provide uh, really essential services to the American people without pay. I'm sure politically there's there's blame on both sides, but the toll that you talk about, you know, the way the way I'm hearing it from investors is, you know, it comes after this big standoff over the debt ceiling, the dysfunction and the inability for both sides to be able to work together to tackle our fiscal picture, which which is not looking great, is now costing us AAA credit ratings, warnings, more, potential more downgrades from the rating agencies. Is there a concern? Are you concerned that the bond vigilantes could come after after U.S. debt and we could be looking at persistently higher rates as a result of what's happening or not happening in Washington. Well, I am concerned that House Republicans don't seem to understand uh, what they are putting at risk here. And again, completely unnecessarily. I mean, if you think about it, they're right back at it. It was just uh, three months ago that the president sat down with Speaker McCarthy House Republicans, House Democrats, Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats, and the president all came together, did a deal, and the deal was very clear on the budget parameters, and yet here we are uh, just three months later rehashing uh, the same issues with even more draconian cuts uh, being put on the table at the threat by House Republicans of shutting the government down. Uh, it is uh, an unnecessary risk, and I really hope they'll take uh, the opportunity they have to act and to avoid it. But doesn't the administration take on some of the blame, at least, for the fiscal, for the fiscal picture and, and the outlook and the fact that all this legislation, and, and a lot of it is good stuff for the investment and for the future of our country, but is costing a lot of money and is going to increase the, the needs the borrowing needs next year, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, that's all that's all coming and that's all part of it. And it's all part of what's been frustrating to Republicans. So really, uh, Senate Republicans have come together, joined hands with uh, Senate Democrats and have put out a path forward for keeping the government open and uh, have been taking action that's in line with the agreement that was reached uh, back just three months ago that did put the country on a sustainable fiscal path with $1 trillion in spending cuts. You know, if you look at the economy, we just got those uh, second quarter GDP numbers uh, yesterday, and a big important part of that was business investment. Businesses investment is responding to these great investment incentives to build here in America employ Americans to invest in the future of the country, whether it be in semiconductors or in the clean energy transition. So we're seeing a lot mm -hmm. of really strong long-term investments as a result of that important certainty that investors are getting yeah. in that legislation. As far as the economy goes, Director Brainerd, I think the fact that this shutdown is coming at a time where there are a lot of potential shocks. Interest rates continue to rise in the market. Obviously, that's that's a headwind for consumers and the overall economy. We have the resumption of student loan payments coming at the very same time. Gas prices have risen and oil prices continue to rise. This is all hitting. What are your expectations for growth in the last quarter of the year and into 24? Yeah, no, so you're exactly right. Um, a lot of these risks uh, come at a time uh, when I think uh, House Republicans should be recognizing the American people have made a lot of sacrifices. They are contributing to a very strong 
economic recovery. The uh, economy has been very resilient. The last thing we need is to put all of that progress, all of that hard work, so many Americans coming off the sidelines, going into their workplaces. Why put all of that at risk with an unnecessary uh, shutdown? All right, the message from, from the White House, Director Lael Brainerd, thank you so much for weighing thank in you. on today's numbers and on the looming shutdown. And Carl, David, and Mike, I'll see you in just a few moments here from Pebble Beach, where I'll be speaking with Jane Frazier, CEO of Citigroup, and in the next hour as well, Arvind Krishna, the CEO of IBM. Jane's hosting her big TMT conference here with a bunch of leaders. We'll be talking to the CEOs of Arm as well and NASDAQ all coming up. A lot of talk about AI, but also about the spending environment and inflation. We'll see you soon. Sarah, can't wait. I'll talk to you in a bit. Sarah Eisen this morning out west. As we go to break, let's check bonds with the Dow up about 60 points. Uh, the data, of course, this morning, the headline was that 3-9 year-on-year number on core PCE. Yields mostly lower across the board. Two-year can't quite give us a four-handle at 503. We'll be right back. The Fed should stop because they're, the, what they're injuring is the, U, the balance sheet of the United States. The economy is going too slow. The regional banks do not have money. I looked at a deal yesterday in our shop. We were getting a loan. We went to 132 lenders, and we had four lenders actually submit us a proposal. And the spreads are crazy. So what are we doing? We're not, it's a life science project. That was Starwood Capital's founder, Barry Sternlicht, on Squawk Box this morning. Obviously, they have their offices right downtown as well, or actually meatpacking. Um, and he may well be raising a distressed debt fund, given his comments, right. which were fairly dire in terms of, uh, you know, where he thinks the Fed is at in terms of potentially even losing control, where the economy is or where the consumer really may be, the lagging effects. But I did think those comments about 132 lenders approached and only four even yeah. willing to consider were interesting. Uh, and sort of reflective of this credit crunch. Yeah, I was going to say the bank's lack of appetite, first of all, for bonds. I mean, that's one of the big issues of the supply-demand mismatch with, with treasuries is big banks, not a big buyer. Uh, and then just the, you know, they're not in a position of necessarily expanding, you know, corporate credit risk at this time. We had it delivering Alpha yesterday, a panel on private capital. And those folks, uh, you know, uh, private credit, rather, yes. rather, they're licking their chops. But they're essentially saying we can get you 11, 12, 13 percent you know, for underbanked companies. Yes. They That's have moved not in. a great proposition if you're the borrower. No, if yeah. you're the borrower, it doesn't look great, although you're willing to potentially consider doing it. And as we pointed out for quite some time now, they have disseminated the banks when yeah. it comes to um, leverage buyouts uh, and take privates to some extent. Not always, but often you do see the names that you would not have seen a number of years ago. But private credit is in ascendance right now. In part, so much of the money coming from so many other places in the world and sovereign funds, it's not going into our public markets. Yeah. It goes into the private markets, in some in the private credit uh, and others obviously in other areas. But uh, whether it's infrastructure, real estate, and on and on from there, Mike. But it's, It is interesting, this though, you know, as we go through this period when bonds have been you know, under a ton of stress. And, you know, we had this first, you know, realization that regional banks, some of them were mismatched and they were taking big paper losses. You haven't heard it this time, right, in the last little run as yields have made new highs. We'll see if that's to come, but the stocks are trying to, you know, kind of stabilize even in the face of, in theory, their bond portfolios are worth even less now than they were in March. Right. Uh, meantime, 43.25 or so. Uh, when we come back, City's Jane Frazier just moments away when we head back to City's Tech and Media Conference live from Pebble Beach. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. 
All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.